Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Brian O'Connor. Brian is professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. He works in social and political theory with special emphasis on the idiom of critical theory that emerged from the Frankfurt School of Political Philosophy and Social Science. Today, we'll be talking about Brian's latest book, which is titled Idleness, a Philosophical Essay. It's just been published with Princeton University Press. Now, culturally, idleness is widely derided as laziness, uselessness, and sloth. And even within philosophy, the idle are criticized for being wasteful and freeloaders. Indeed, throughout the history of moral and political philosophy, it's frequently asserted, but not often argued, that humans must be perpetually active, busy, and, in a word, productive. But why? Is there really nothing to be said in favor of idling? In his new book, Brian O'Connor examines a range of anti-idleness views and finds them lacking. He then proposes an alternative account of idleness, according to which it's a component of human freedom. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also as usual, we'll begin with our guest. Hi, Brian. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Very well. Very well. Nice to talk to you. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Um, why don't you start us off uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, as you mentioned at the beginning, I work in Dublin. I'm also from Dublin, where I grew up. I uh, did my undergraduate education at University College Dublin. Um, went abroad to England, to Oxford, to work on my doctoral studies. My supervisor there was Michael Rosie, and he's now at, at Harvard. And then just as I was winding up there, a job came up at my old university. So I've been there uh, ever since. So my, my story is pretty much that of a, a Dubliner through and through. <laughs> uh, and and you can go home, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a fine place to live. And uh, I, I have nothing but good memories of pretty much all of my life through uh, to the present day living here. I, I grew up, uh, Dublin's traditionally considered to be divided, at least in the past, into two halves, the north side and the south side. It's since acquired a west side, but uh, I grew up on the north side, which was for a long time regarded as the less fashionable of, of the two. But it was a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, it was pretty unregulated. We had open fields. We we, we, I think I got my first real taste of, uh, of idleness then, and uh, I, I look back in those times with fondness. Is Dublin still um, – is that, is that section of Dublin still the less fashionable section? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, uh, with, with, the, with the upsurge of the economy over the last 15 to 20 years, basically anywhere that was already well settled became uh, gentrified or, or, or re-inhabited by the – well to do and so uh there's, there's very little of dublin that isn't uh 
in some sense um, fashionable and over expensive at this point. Ah, oh, it's the yeah. uh, uh, living in Nashville. We are experiencing the same. Well, we have been experiencing the same kind of thing. Um, so um, why don't we talk uh, get to talking about the book? Does that sound uh, like a good plan? I hope so. Great. Um, so maybe let's begin with um, with the project itself. Uh, as I was mentioning to you before we, we began, you know, when, when the uh, when I saw the notice of, of your book, I, it, it struck me because um, the only other work that I was familiar with that was devoted particularly to the topic of idleness was an old Bertrand Russell essay. Um mm. Uh, which I'm sure many of our listeners uh, might have read at some point in their life. Uh, so um, can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to the topic? Yeah, I think a number of strands brought me there, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't planned. I just seemed to happen on it. But one of the strands is a pretty straightforward one. I, I've been interested in a long time in understanding the philosophical idea of autonomy. And given my you know, training in the history of philosophy, particularly in German idealism, it was obvious that I would try to come to grips with Kant's texts. And right there in the groundwork, there is a, a rather surprising denunciation of idleness, which, you know, caught my attention uh, and seemed to seem to bother me more than than a number of his other uh, unusual <laughs> claims. Yeah. <laughs> And I just tried to I just tried to figure it out. And then again, with the historical sort of training, I started looking around to see whether he was the only one who had a dim view of idleness. And, you know, luckily for me, uh, all of the major critics uh, were people working in areas of, of philosophy that I didn't find terribly hard to come to terms with. So the German idealists, those post enlightenment or, you know, concurrent with the enlightenment thinkers, where much of the strong uh, criticism of a particular kind of idleness arose. So it was really just that just finding that passage in Kant and discovering that he wasn't alone in his condemnation that gave rise to the uh, urge to try to understand it. But I guess there's always something, well, at least if you work in the kind of uh, tradition, which, as you mentioned at the beginning, I do, which is the tradition of critical theory, it, it isn't really just about exploring points for purely historical reasons. And uh, actually, we just mentioned the uh, the burgeoning economy in, in the country in which I live. And it was really quite extraordinary to see the enormous growth in productivity and wealth and, and busyness, everybody saying they were never busier, and a certain competitiveness at the level of busyness. Um, I also noticed that people were making themselves rather vulnerable with all of this uh, commitment to super productivity because we had a rather major recession right. uh, and not, not only you know was that telling on uh, at the by the usual economic indicators but there was was tremendous existential uh, disasters for all kinds of people who not simply lost wealth but lost purpose lost identity and I, I think that 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 was sort of playing in the back of my mind when I wondered whether Idleness hadn't been given a, a a raw deal by the by the top thinkers of our our philosophical practices in the West. Yeah, so good. Um, that that both of those kinds of concerns, so the, the sort of surprise at the the history of philosophy, um, sort of taking oddly, you know, like, well, let me put it this way: what comes out in the book is not only that. You know, uh, a certain strand of philosophers have um, come out against idleness, 
but they've sort of come out against idleness with an unexpected level of vehemence. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's very true. And it's, it's, um, you know, one of the things I tried to put across was that, uh, there is a kind of a historical shift in the way in which idleness is treated from the sort of the end of the 18th century onwards in philosophical circles, at least yeah, right across the world, wherever you have, you know, civilizations, settled cultures, there's very little tolerance of laziness. That's, that's for sure. And uh, the Christian tradition would be one among many that condemns uh, idleness as such. Usually, though, there is a sense that uh, the human being is at risk of degeneration by idleness. But something different happened among the philosophers in the era that uh, sort of grabbed my attention, which was their emphasis wasn't so much on whether we need to avoid idleness for fear of falling into kind of degeneracy, but whether we were actually missing out on opportunities to make the very best of ourselves, something that they claimed that we had a moral duty to do. And that thought maybe to some listeners will sound strange, but actually that thought has survived into contemporary ethical thought. I mean, no less a philosopher than Christina Korsgaard makes a huge uh, amount of uh, uh, play on the idea that we have a duty to make the most of ourselves and that idleness is a constant enemy of that to, to uh, the achievement of that duty. So that, that's a kind of a, a very modern idea. Nowhere in the past, I think, is the worry about idleness that it prevents a certain kind of level of self-realization. Rather, it's kind of beginning of a certain kind of moral disease. Uh, So the philosophers lead the charge in a kind of a post-religious framing of of idleness. Yeah. And, you know, in the States, at least, it's not uncommon. um, And your book helped me sort of think uh, or or notice this feature of um, uh, a certain vernacular in the States. It's not uncommon um, uh, for for one to talk about... um, the retired, uh, the elderly, uh, mm. as people who've earned idleness, oh, yeah. <laughs> which again, you know, after I, I started hearing that sort of, well, they've earned it, you know, they've, they've put in a good, you know, however many years work and now they're enjoying, uh, this, you know, their, their, their retirement, they've, they've earned it. And it, it, your book helped me think like, now that's an interesting thought that idleness is something you need to earn. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. ties idleness to the productivity ideal in a uh, in a pretty explicit way, right? Yeah, I think so. And actually, that's an this is a really interesting thought. I suspect that when people you know utter that thought, they probably use the word leisure, which is a little bit more respectable than <laughs> idleness, because it, idleness might bring to to mind the image of a completely you know vacant, uh, purposeless existence, whereas even those who've earned their rest, uh, we we probably have a prejudice in favor of them doing something useful with that rest. And that's what we call leisure. You know, hopefully they now have time to to learn those languages they swore they would learn when they were too busy to do so or to travel or to, I don't know, to do more of something that they couldn't do. Um, and that's and that's a kind of a positive use of the time that you get when, as you say, you deserve your rest after a career of intensive productivity and an effort. But idleness, I think, gives people a certain kind of disconcerting image of uh, 
of, of a, just a, an utterly shapeless, uh, risky uh, existence. Um, so, yeah, I think the phrase well-earned leisure is, 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 uh, is current right across our, our, our Western cultures, if not beyond. <laughs> yeah. So great. And now maybe this is a, a nice segue then. So I'm sure um, many of our listeners now are wondering, given that we've um, just contrasted idleness with sort of wanton inactivity uh, or freeloading or, uh, as you just said, shapeless, the shapeless existence um, So um, and laziness. Um, so can you tell us a bit maybe to get us started into the, the, the substance of the book um, and the argument? Uh, can you tell us what you mean uh, by idleness? What is it? How is it different from, say, laziness? Well, I'll start with the laziness point. Uh, I, I don't think it's very easy to definitively distinguish it from laziness because in some people's usage, I think they are referring to the very same concept. But one way we might distinguish them is to think of laziness as a bit like what the old philosophers called a sort of weakness of will. So we might think a, a lazy person knows perfectly well what they ought to be doing, but just isn't particularly pushed to do it. Uh, you know, so they, they understand their responsibilities and their duties and the importance of their career and self-development, but they just aren't really motivated. I think of the, the, the idle, in contrast, are people who don't just feel the uh, appeal of those things in the first place, who don't recognize the significance of productivity and self-realization and making the most of one's life or, you know, looking back on a life worth living as, as, as some people grandly look back on their lives. So it's, it's different in that respect. But already you can see that the way I'm coming at this is, is slightly negative. Um, I'm, I'm finding it easier to say uh, what idleness is in terms of the things that it, it isn't. Um, so it, it is indifference, I think, to what, how one should make the most of oneself. It's indifference to the games of you know, social progress, social advancement and competition. Um, it's, it's a disregard for what philosophers like Rousseau uh, thematize so brilliantly as, a, as opinion. So it, it, it's clearly not inertia in that respect. It's really a, a kind of inactivity with regard to specific kinds of values, as I say, like productivity, uh, social esteem, opinion and, and so forth. So in that respect, then, is idleness um, on this conception um, also distinct from uh, what we might think of as rest, right, where uh, rest and maybe even the, the kind of rest that we associate with vacationing, <laughs> mm, <laughs> taking right. time off. Um, yeah. These are all rest, taking time off, maybe um Uh, maybe a, a certain sense of uh, what the, the term leisure or leisure uh, refers to. Um, these are all terms about sort of stepping away from product productive activity for the sake of returning to it more refreshed, right? Exactly. So uh, one way in which I try to capture that distinction is to think about leisure in that sense as kind of being incorporated within the world of work. And It really is. I mean, uh, in, in well-run companies, uh, you know, vacation is, is not something that's begrudgingly given by employers to the to their to their uh, rebellious workers. It's rather something that 
is uh, regarded as good HR practice. Yeah. Workers who are rested uh, come back, you know, with fresh ideas. Uh, they come back with maybe a bit, bit more commitment to the job and so forth. Sometimes there are even, uh, you know, good uh, management reasons to give people time off, which is it's an opportunity for the boss to review the work when when the actual worker isn't isn't protecting it from from review. But but generally speaking, yeah, uh, leisure is something that is uh, is part and parcel of the world of work, and not just a kind of a begrudging concession to the worker, but uh, an important part of what makes the world of work work as as well as it does. Right, and so the the justification of uh, leisure. Uh, time off, as we call it in the States, we, we have this uh, HR term flex time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, these are all um, justified by means of, right, their instrumental uh, value from the perspective of the working world, right, productivity, whereas idleness, I take it on this, uh, on the conception that you're aiming to defend, um, is, um, well, as you put it, a kind of indifference to those instrumental considerations. Yeah, I think so. And pe people actually find it, I've noticed, uh, difficult, just probably because I haven't really thought about it before, but at first find it difficult to imagine that kind of idleness. So people will hear, you know, that there's some unusual interest among uh, philosophers in the topic of idleness. And they say, I, I really like idling. And they'll give examples that actually turn out to be perfect examples of the incorporation model. That's to say, they say, you know, I like to take the weekend off because that's when I get my best ideas or, or whatever. Uh, and I like to take a good walk because I come back with, you know, much, much greater uh, motivation to get back to my projects. Uh, but that, that really isn't idleness. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of uh, recuperation that is, is productive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. Um, so good. Why don't we? So the way that the argument of the book proceeds is, um, as, as I said in the the introduction, um, is by way of a, a, a series of engagements with anti idle anti idleness views, we might call them. Yeah. And um, as we've also mentioned, uh, you know, it, it is pretty remarkable that you know there's just a sort of um, a kind of a throwaway line in the groundwork that Kant oddly comes out very strongly against the idol. Uh, yeah, and it's yeah. not clear what, you know, so there's a kind of um, almost sort of an animus against idleness. Um, so I want to make sure that we get to talk a little bit about some of these historical engagements. So right. um, can we talk a little bit, or uh, maybe you can run us through uh, in some more detail uh, than, than what you've already provided. Um, sort of, you know, let's begin with Kant. Can, can you spell out sort of the, what your reconstruction of the Kantian anti idleness picture? Yeah, well, if the only thing Kant had ever said about idleness was that passage in the groundwork, then really there wouldn't be, you know, much controversy. Just to just to remind your listeners what he, he does talk about in the groundwork, uh, and then and then to uh, refer to some of the other issues that contribute to a, an overall position against idleness. In the groundwork, he imagines um, what he, a group that he refers to. I'm not quite sure who he has in mind as the South Sea Islanders, yeah. and he's clearly he's read some kind of geographical report or explorer's report about how these people live rather blissfully in idleness. Um, 
And it's almost though he allows the thought to slip out and then pulls it back from us as soon as he can, because he thinks that although that could function as a law of nature, uh, after all, you, you know, the South Sea Islanders do manage to uh, preserve themselves and reproduce themselves. So they, they live effectively according to nature. But what we could never do is endorse a life like that uh, as moral agents, because uh, and that's where the argument becomes sticky because we wouldn't see it as a way of life worthy of beings like us. And that, that alerts uh, us to a kind of uh, a prejudice in his thinking. And it turns out that there are other parts of his philosophy where there's a great deal of emphasis on the importance of effort and worthiness. It's, it's found in particular strands. So his famous essay on universal history talks about the progress of human beings as one in which an inbuilt uh, incapacity for rest uh, is one which ensures that whenever we achieve anything uh, through this restlessness, uh, we kind of achieve something that's worthwhile. But let me put that a a different way, that we have this, uh, we're we're ill-equipped in comparison with other creatures uh, because what we find all around us in nature simply isn't good enough for us. And this restlessness that's built into human nature is such that we want to bring order, you know, we want to go beyond the bare essentials that nature provides for us. And from that, we, we gain something he calls a sense of worthiness. And this worthiness is like something we, we ought to acquire. So with that in mind, referring back to the the, the blissful South Sea Islanders, they live too close to nature. They make no effort to really improve their circumstances. They, they really, in, in Kant's, um, I guess, imaginary, do little more than just reach out and take what it is they need. But beings like us who have a different conception of what we ought to be understand that settling for what is just given to us is, is just not um, uh, something we could ever feel elevated by. So if that's the case, then, you know, the temptations of idleness really have uh, serious consequences. They stand in the way of human beings achieving uh, a worthiness. And I find, and maybe it's something I, I will hope to continue to explore at some point, I find the notion of worthiness just that little bit obscure. It seems to do a lot of work without really being explained in non-circular terms. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's 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 both an objective and it's also a something that motivates us. Uh, and it's not clear how we acquire it and how there are civilizations that live perfectly successfully without it. Right. So there, there so there are those different strands to his thought that uh, add up to quite a few, um, you know, points of convergence on the question of idleness. Yeah, and I guess that even just within the confines of the moral theory, and particularly even within the confines of the groundwork, you know, I'll confess, I've I've never quite uh, understood the, the the full motivation in Kant for uh, the the moral duty to develop one's talents or the moral yeah. duty to improve oneself. That's always seemed to me the part in the groundwork where I just you know. Uh, I, I, I can't, I can't see the thread of the argument, uh, uh, leading him there. Um, 
but maybe that's just my own problem. But um, no, I, sh- a, I, sh- I share I share that that sense so, of perplexity. Right, right, good. So it then then it looks like if there is a moral duty to develop your talents, if, if there's something immoral about the person who could be a great surgeon but instead likes to golf, uh, um, <laughs> uh, then it does look like it's 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 not only a, an anti idleness view in the sense that it, we're not making the most of ourselves, we're wasting something within ourselves, we're not, you know, uh, uh, um, constituting ourselves as selves, to use some Korsgardian kinds of uh, uh, imagery. Um, but we're actually, you know, we're actually living immorally, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, 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 at the very least, we're a disappointment to ourselves in that if we were in, for a moment stirred to reflect morally on what we're doing, we know we couldn't defend it. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Why why we'd be stirred to make any kind of assessment of what we were doing in in a kind of an idle, indeed, semi hedonistic space. Why why we would feel that the call of moral self-assessment is not clear either. Yeah, that's you know, that's an interesting piece of this uh, of this as well, because um you know, we know uh, that it's a thought that's been swimming around moral philosophy for a long time. Many people encounter it for the first time in this, the Susan Wolf Moral Saints essay. We just say, yeah, there, there are regions of human conduct where it's just – it's not that we, we should even think of them in terms of moral permissibility or impermissibility. They're just not subject to moral evaluation in a certain respect, right? Right. It's just, it's just beyond the reach of morality, and maybe we need there to be. Um, sort of facets or regions within a human life that is otherwise morally accessible as good or flourishing. Maybe we just need those regions where it's just it's neither it's morally neither here nor there. Morality just is not part of the story uh, for that part of one's life. It's neither it's not that it's morally permissible to do what you like. It's that the categories of moral assessment are kind of misplaced. I completely agree with that. That's that's really. Very much what I I think myself, and something that I I try to establish by the end of the book. Yeah, that's right. There there are there are spaces of experience that just are uh, well. We can try to thematize what they are in uh, in in other kinds of uh, philosophical uh, discussions, but what they don't seem to be are. Uh, if you like moral kinds, they are they are just forms of living uh, in a way that. It just appears to be agreeable or meaningful, but yeah, lose their shape entirely uh, if we bring sort of uh, a moral calculus to bear on them. Right, right. So great. Mm-hmm. So um, we've got this sort of sort of brooding view in Kant. <laughs> um, yeah. The next move that you make is to, is to sort of a, a pretty natural one, I should say. Um, uh, to, to talk a little bit about the way that anti-idleness figures in um, uh, Hegel and then Marx, um, where, you, you know, um, uh, it, it, it is an interesting <laughs> uh, it's an interesting progression uh, uh, from the Kantian, uh, you know, you, you, you have to make yourself worthy of, uh, of, of something by developing yourself or constituting the self in particular ways. Um, uh, to these two subsequent sort of German um, uh, thinkers who um, 
in some ways stand opposed to Kant or see themselves as standing opposed to Kant, but in lots of crucial junctures wind up just reformulating some, <laughs> some right. Kantian themes. Um, so can you tell us a, a bit about how the, the, the Hegel uh, Marx sort of post-Kantian trajectory uh, uh, treats idleness? Well, I think Hegel is a really challenging critic of idleness. Whereas Kant, you know, in, I suppose explores the notion of idleness through a thought experiment and wonders whether uh, it, the lives of others, uh, exotic others, are defensible in the terms, the moral terms that we make our own. Hegel just thinks that question is already mistaken. You know, that, that can't really be a question for people like us. And in, in a sense, it's slightly maddening because the reason why it can't be a question for us is because we, we are not conditioned to be idlers. We're already socialized by our practical education, by the uh, norms we internalize about making ourselves useful. So to ask oneself, you know, should I be idle is is just a nonsensical question from the embedded uh, perspective, which is what we all have as readers of Hegel, in the embedded perspective of, uh, you know, properly socialized uh, uh, members of our of our advanced industrial uh, civilizations. So. Uh, he has uh, nothing but uh, scorn where he refers to idleness at all, uh, because it, it's always a kind of a grotesque uh, alternative to what we do. It's an alternative that it just falls so far below what it is that we we basically are. Uh, it's inappropriate for us. He, he offers the image of a, a barbarian, and again, we 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 don't really know. Uh, what culture or uh, location this barbarian is to be found in. But the barbarian is virtually the opposite of everything we think of ourselves as being. The barbarian is, is solitary for some reason. Uh, he's, he's, he's lazy. He, he's, he's brooding, at least uh, that's the way the, uh, the main English translation cap captures it. So he contrasts effectively the characteristics of the, the idle barbarian with the kind of gregarious uh, uh, switched on uh, Westerner who's always kind of looking for something to do. Um, yeah, that, that's right. And he also has a has a kind of a historical debate with uh, Diogenes, who <laughs> it, 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 I, I think some I think some ground is made uh, to give Hegel some credit against Diogenes because Diogenes is kind of a performative idler. Uh, and and Hegel finds that reprehensible. And in a sense, it's a contrivance, as as it must be, because in the end, it goes back to the point that you know the alternist, no, no matter how spectacular his efforts to shock his contemporaries will be, is in the end a socialized uh, Athenian trying to shock right. his contemporaries. Yeah. So in in other words, Hegel really what's so challenging about his position is that he he tries to kind of. Uh, undermine the very idea of idleness as a thought that we can, um, you know, defensively have given where we stand. Yeah, yeah so that's interesting. Um, and, and how does that get spelled out then or, or carried forward um, in, a, in a more materialist, materialist um, uh, idiom, we might say, from the Hegelian uh, in, in Marx? 
Yeah, I, I, I think my reading of Marx wouldn't be everyone's. I, I concentrate mainly on the early Marx, right. where it seems to me that uh, he, he emphasizes a kind of a, an effective relationship between members of, of a community. And he has a very positive notion of work when he refers to it as social uh, work, in that it's always a contribution uh, to the knowing needs of others. If you go back to Hegel, Hegel has some interest in the classical economists, that's to say Smith and, and, his, and his followers, uh, and uh, understands that the way in which we work in the system, the system of needs, as he calls it, is not always with any kind of conscious concern for the well-being of others, but we're kind of shaped to contribute to that. Marx, at least in the earlier phase, seems to have a more conscious or assert that there could be a more conscious concern for the needs of others uh, in a kind of a communal space when we undertake work. So in that respect, I mean, it's very it's very obvious why idleness will be a bad thing. It's it's basically it's selfishness. It's a refusal to to give a, a, a damn about the needs of others. Uh, it's a refusal to play one's part in what could be a, a complex and organic system of, of mutual uh, satisfaction. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's turn to. Um uh one issue that um uh you say you think is a um where the action is at for the idleness mm. versus the anti-idleness um and this comes up in a discussion of Schopenhauer among others um which is the, the worry that idleness even construed um in the way that you are understanding it not as laziness not as leisure um but uh, it's just a sort of stepping back from uh, an indifference towards um, uh, the world of, of, of producing. Um, uh, the worry is that idleness is um, uh, destined to bore us or to create boredom in us. And yeah. the argument then, I guess, you know, it's easy to spell out. Like, well, boredom is obviously a bad thing. So if idleness is destined to produce boredom, Idleness looks like it's going to be uh, inherit that badness. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, your views about idleness and 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 the the, the response to the, the the worry about boredom? Yeah, I, I think at the superficial level, the claim that idleness leads to boredom is actually well made. I think that's a I think that's a genuine experience. Just by coincidence, today I heard some reports that. Uh, a lot of workers, in spite of their entitlements, are, are not taking up their full uh, complement of annual leave. And you know, there are some, there are different reasons for that. Sometimes it's simply that they don't have the, the the extra income to enjoy a nice vacation. One of the reasons is that they actually find, uh, increasingly, people are finding the, the image of the or, or the experience of a long vacation actually quite tedious. And there's a kind of a longing to get back to the desk or to back to the driving seat or whatever one's role is. And this can only be because work has become such a presence in the daily structure of their lives that the, the time spent not working is actually a challenge. It's, it's something that we're not really well trained to do. So I think, again, at the superficial level, the connection between boredom and idleness is a, is a very, a, a very real one. The, the, 
difficulty about the way in which Schopenhauer makes the claim, though, is that he considers it to be just a fact of nature. Right. You know, it's it's in the essence of human beings that uh, when uh, idle, this horrific experience of boredom will overcome them. He has a, a complicated enough uh, uh, kind of psychology, philosophical psychology, in which he thinks of human beings as endlessly willing. Uh, and uh, when when the will is not attached to any particular project, it sort of it keeps whirling around and sort of tormenting itself. And that's what he thinks of as the experience of, of boredom. It's an unsettling, uh, disturbing uh, experience, and human beings will do anything to avoid it. So what, really the argument with, with Schopenhauer is whether his, his psychology is based on nature or whether, in fact, he has mistakenly taken the conditioning of, of workers or particularly those of his own sort of social set uh, to be uh, natural when, in fact, they're the product of highly educated, highly competitive and um, ambitious uh, individuals uh, who, who, who will see idleness, who will see having no major project to do as a kind of a, a kind of a, a crushing lack in their lives. So that, that's that's really the, the major uh, argument I have with um, with Schopenhauer. But, you know, there are there are there are, there are a fair number of um, psychological studies about uh, boredom that are connected with idleness. And generally speaking, those studies find uh, idleness and boredom to be entwined in a fairly self-destructive relationship. Either even some of the major psychiatric disorders have occasionally been diagnosed as uh, having self-destructive tendencies produced by boredom. You know, people will do uh, the, 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 the most dangerous things sometimes just to get a kind of a, a thrill or to excite themselves. So, Idleness is, is in those cases something that people just can't manage, uh, uh, and I've been known uh, to kind of, as it were, expunge that that idleness by undertaking dangerous, self-destructive, or unhealthy uh, actions. Yeah. So I, I I mean Schopenhauer, like like Kant, like Hegel, and indeed like Marx, they're all there in the study because. I think they have something really important to say. It's just I think that they haven't quite got at the phenomenon correctly. You know, they're not they're not sort of lined up as a series of kind of uh, sitting ducks to uh, allow readers to be impressed by my marksmanship. It's uh, is is that they really have a kind of a model for work and experience that says something that many readers will recognize from their own sort of daily uh explanations to themselves of why they work or, or why they think work is something worth doing or what is the consequences of work uh, of not working might be. And the boredom thesis is certainly one I think is a, is one that many people will relate to without ever having a word of uh, Schopenhauer. And I, I take it that you're, I mean, your quarrel with, with particularly with the Schopenhauerian um, line is just that it's, there's no reason to attribute this um, drive for busyness and productivity to anything that's natural about human beings. It's just the social world is set up from the time that we're very young uh, uh, yeah. to um, 
create within us a system of desires uh, and other psychological mechanisms that um, drive us to locate our worth and locate worthiness uh, of, of any of our activities with um, production. Exactly. And I know it's always a risky path to go, go down the, 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 the sort of the route of the ad hominem kind of analysis. But we know that Schopenhauer himself was a, a highly driven individual who at least that's what the biographies report, right. uh, a highly driven individual who was really quite uh, obsessed with his own fame, with his own uh, advancing reputation in the German world of of letters. So. We have to assume that he would not have found rest that easy. He and he probably he generalized from his own experiences, growing up in a kind of an ambitious uh, household, that this was just the way human beings were 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 designed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, on the on the boredom issue, there's another there's another uh, dimension that I thought was was worth exploring. Though I I, I found a fascinating discussion in. Simone de Beauvoir's work right. about the uh, the image of the idle woman, and it's it's a fascinating uh, critique because some some rather traditionally minded philosophers and there's a there's a very uh, controversial passage in Kierkegaard to this effect have imagined that women of a certain class kind of excel in the art of idleness, but. Beauvoir sort of blows a hole in that whole myth by describing the kind of social pressures that might lead women of a certain time and a certain class to look like they're idle, to look like they're the ideal sort of complement to the the busy, uh, you know, thrusting uh, partner that they have as, as a husband. And I found that probably one of the most challenging uh, scenarios for trying to find um, more positive accounts of idleness because her account of the idle woman was really quite uh, distressing. It's the image of a woman who, in order to be the kind of, uh, I suppose, almost unthreatening companion to a husband, abandons any kind of efforts she might once have made to educate herself or to acquire skills. All of this is... um, seems to have no major implications uh, during the early years of marriage where there are perhaps are children to keep them all occupied. But once the woman finds herself without those kinds of distractions, she has no skills, she has no proper education, and the idleness then becomes a burden. She doesn't know how to fill the time. So I, I thought that that image of the idle woman was really quite uh, quite a challenge to those who, like myself, would want to find a, a, a better account uh, of experience than that of, of constant productivity. But again, the answer to uh, a position like Beauvoir, or indeed, or let's put it this way, the insight one can gain from reading someone like Beauvoir is that the institution of marriage as designed in the, uh, the one that she is considering is one where idleness is almost a, 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 an implicitly enforced norm. Right. And uh, it, it certainly underpins the reality that I- individuals who don't know how to use their idle time will find it a struggle. 
But when it's when it's enforced, you're t- you really what the kind of women that the, the, the book that Beauvoir writes talks about, um, the kind of women she's talking about are women who have had the experience of education, the experience of 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 thinking about what they might do, but then who somehow bring that to an unnatural halt. So they're they're not not really idlers in the proper sense. It's a kind of a and enforced a, a sort of a stunted self-development. Right, right. So this is a nice segue into the sort of more positive uh, account that you uh, develop in the latter chapters of the book. So you find some inspiration uh, in an account of play uh, that um, we find articulated in uh, Marcuse and Schiller. Mm-hmm. Um you um, make the connection then between th- th- that conception of, of, of playfulness and uh, the view of idleness that you're, um, you eventually w- wind up articulating in the, in the concluding chapter. Yeah, the discussion of Schiller on play is, is more technical, certainly, than the, the discussion of Marcuse. And that's because Schiller arrives at a notion of play through his conception, if you like, of the legacy of of Kantian philosophy. And that is to say, Kant's philosophy says really there are two kinds of compulsion or, or necessities. One is the necessity that's brought about by moral duty. And even Kant concedes that sometimes that's rather unpleasant. You know, doing what one knows one ought to do might be morally fulfilling, but it's not always pleasant. And then there's the compulsion of of pleasure, the necessity of pleasure, of just following one's desires, that um, effectively is the is the path of immorality. Uh, Schiller speculates that there might be some way of conjoining those two necessities, where you have the kind of uh, idea of freedom that is involved in moral freedom, but you have the kind of pleasurableness that's involved in following one's desires and he models that under the notion of of freedom or, or, I'm sorry of play now as as you'd expect a theory as ambitious as that is going to struggle you know just just sure. just just synthesizing two strands and thinking you can produce a, a coherent third it is you know it fails in pretty much every philosophical case where that's attempted but at the same time, there's a kind of an attractive image in that it seems to detach um, freedom from the more gruesome notions of self-realization and uh, the achievement of worthiness that Schiller himself uh, found in Kant. The Marcuse discussion is, although it starts with a kind of acknowledgement of Schiller's um, contribution, is is really kind of a reflection on on Marx and an attempt to take Marx's image beyond, mm-hmm. you know, the, the negative associations many would have with it, which in the end, as I think Adorno once said, Marx just wanted to turn the world into a great big workhouse. Yeah. Is it, how can we think of work as something that might be pleasurable? How would work be something that doesn't, if you like, violate our, our sensuousness, where it doesn't compel us to kind of distort our experiences into the working day uh, and separate it entirely from spheres of pleasure. It, it's clear from what I'm saying that a discussion like that is going to push us into in a kind of a utopian direction. 
because where work would be something a bit more like play and a bit more like idleness, it's not clear it really means anything anymore. But, you know, I think the effort is, is, is significant because those two philosophers, Schiller and Marcuse, are among the few who recognize the kind of threat uh, that's inherent in the um, very modern idea that the self, just as much as anything else, is a space of work, that it must be crafted in order to become a kind of an effective object in the world. Uh, there's, there's a sense in which the, the notion of playfulness uh, loosens that kind of obligation. Right, right. So um, then the big question now is, so what's the positive? So the, the positive upshot is, um, I guess, first, uh, that um, the the sort of the standard fare of anti-idleness views in philosophy, um, uh, they're not as, as, as powerful or the, the arguments aren't as cogent as, as we might uh, be led to think by the people who proffer them. Um, and also, though, that y you want to, to claim that idleness has, um, that there's a component of or a kind of human freedom that um, is uh, inaccessible to us unless we understand the value of idleness. Can you can you tell us about Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, abs that's absolutely right. Again, it seems to me that people have an image of idleness uh, oftentimes. Not everyone, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, whatever the, whatever people might think, um, in my experience, people working as uh, professors in universities have an incredible work ethic, and many of them have said to me they don't even recognize anything attractive about idleness as I describe it. But there are some who, like myself, will confess to that vice. And I, I try to figure out, well, what, what is it that is um, in idleness that seems so appealing? And, and I think many people will say, I, I, I like the idea of not being driven by the imperatives of productivity and of esteem and, and, and all those things we've mentioned before. So how do we capture that? Uh, I, I, it's, it, it represents to me a kind of image of freedom. It's very different from the major models of freedom that we find in the classical theories of of freedom in social philosophy because it has it has nothing to do with freedom in the context of um, of of others as such, which is the major Hegelian model. It simply recognizes itself as valuable to itself because it is not, as it were, under the uh, constraints or the direction of purposes that uh, lie outside one's, oneself. So I think that's the sense in which idleness can be defended as a form of freedom. It's, it's action which is not reducible to the command of, of, of others or of institutions. It has a kind of a, it has its own sense of what it is it wants to do without instruction from those sources. Is it, that's, that's interesting, is it possible to fail at idleness? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think that uh, one of the difficulties I have when I try to answer a, a tricky question like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, is that is that I I'm not sure how far I can go in imagining uh, a positive sort of state of idleness, such that then I could also say, well, this 
this is somebody trying positively to be <laughs> idleness and and failing at it. Uh, uh, I think uh, for those of us who are socialized and great workers and so on, I think we probably find we fail at idleness right. much of the time. I mean, uh, I, I guess there are numerous instances where we think we might take a break or we might think we do something that's very different from from work and our minds are pulled back in various ways. I mean, it's clearly not helped by the into the you know the information technology uh, we have these days where you're never really away from anything anyway yeah. but you know i think i think we, we we know that leisure isn't what it used to be even even leisure that that period of recuperation that's sanctioned even like by the regime of work even leisure isn't what it used to be when people are checking emails or receiving communications that you know in a sense play on their minds as as they're supposedly away from the places of, of work yeah so, so yeah let me is there a is there a, a one thought too many style problem sort of looming in the the endeavor to initiate a period of idleness <laughs> does it yes. look like it's there's there's a, you know i mean it's a fact so surely um Surely, you're, you, the, the 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 sort of negative way of understanding the phenomenon is winning, right? That our lives are have been sort of colonized by all of these concepts and drives and norms associated with work and production mm. and mm. cooperation aimed at some jointly produced um, end. Idleness is the uh, indifference to the stepping back from perhaps in some sense, the rejection of that. Um, but yeah, there's a, I guess there's a, a worry about the, um, whether idleness can be the object of one's intentional in like, can I, it's almost like, you know, I, 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 I can't try to be surprised. <laughs> right, right. Right. Like does idleness have that sort of feature to it that it's, it's, it, it can't be, you know, okay, on Sundays is be idle. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because I mean, if 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 what I say in the book is in any way correct, then you know that switching to idleness would involve some kind of supreme act of, you know, schizophrenic, yeah, uh, uh, you know, selfhood. Because you you would be one day this and the other other day you know not and I, I, I don't get into the book and I, I think you know sometimes I, I, my feeling is that people might be a bit frustrated that I don't into making any positive recommendations and saying well look idleness is good for you and all you really need to think about in order to be idle are the following uh, really I, I I think what I contribute is uh, is a little bit uh, further below the the surface than that, which is to say, well, if you sometimes wonder why it is that you can't act on the idleness you sometimes imagine you'd like to act on, maybe it's one or more of the following beliefs that affect your capacity to act on that idleness. And as it happens, those beliefs are not just your beliefs. These are beliefs that run quite deeply in our 
culture, so much so that they have managed to make an impact on a number of important philosophical texts. The philosophers obviously take them to a grander level where they you know, capture these intuitions about why we shouldn't be idle and place them in their big systems of, of social theory and so forth. But in the end, they're really uh, closely related to the everyday views that, you know, there's something kind of unworthy about being idle or there's something selfish or something uh, impossible about being idle or boring about being idle and so on. And so, as, as I say, when people ask themselves, well, why, sh why is it that I think idle, I'd like to idle, but I find myself uh, inclined against it? I, I think some of the analysis of the book, you know, might excavate some of that. Now, I, I don't believe that any one of us brought up as we, we are and socialized uh, really could be idle uh, in, as such, but at least we might wonder why it is that we are. It seems in two minds about about it. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, let me just say uh, the the book is fabulous. I had a great time reading it, and um, uh, highly recommend it to everybody uh, who um, has been. Um, well, all of my colleagues, anybody who's been in, asked me a philosophical question, I've said, by the way, there's this Brian O'Connor book that I really think everyone should be reading. Um, huh. So, Brian, you've been very generous with your time. I know um, it's a, uh, as I say often at the end of these interviews, you know, it's a cruel question to ask somebody who's just written a fabulous book what they're going to do next. And I think there's a an additional irony uh, to uh, this final question, given the topic of your book. Um, but uh, what are you going to do next? <laughs> well, it's, it's just as well. Uh, I said a few moments ago that I don't have any positive recommendations to those who might look to me to uh, tell them how to be idle because I, I struggle with it myself. And so I'd be involved in a performative self-contradiction uh, because I am quite busy. I, I, I do want to get more and more, uh, more deeply into the question of autonomy. I also hope to put together a, a sort of a volume on the, the history of perceptions of, of work uh, because in a way that work is the other side of the question of, of idleness. Um, so, yeah, I've got quite a bit going on and uh, all of my uh, fantasies of idleness are are constantly challenged by the project that so seem to suggest themselves to me for one reason or another. Well, um, I look forward to uh, to seeing more uh, on related topics uh, uh, to the uh, to the one you've just written this fantastic book about. Um, I want to close by thanking you for your time today, Brian. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. And it's been fabulous to talk to you. Um, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, I remind you, the book is written by Brian O'Connor. Uh, his new book is titled uh, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay. Uh, and it's been published uh, by Princeton University Press. Thanks for tuning in. Bye for now. <laughs>